Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Amen. Thank you so much today for joining us to worship with us. Whether you are here in the building or joining us online, we welcome you here to this time to celebrate the Lord together. If you're watching online, watching from your home or your living room right now, you probably noticed even during the time of worship and celebration that we do have some here in the building today, and you probably recognize that many were worshiping the Lord. And uh, we want you to know that we are praying and we are preparing, of course, to open up officially and publicly for everyone to join us as well. Today, we're blessed to have many from our leadership team that are right here in the building with us. They love you. They've been praying with and for you as well. And uh, we look forward here in the coming week to announce clearly when we will officially be opening. So today, uh, they're here today helping us figure out how we can best reopen in a safe and healthy way for all of the church body and for the community. So we're thankful you're here today. I love that song as we sang that Jesus is our redeemer and he is our healer. It's hard for me to sing that song uh, without being overcome by emotion when I consider what God's done in my life, not only physically to bring healing to my body, but spiritually to bring uh, the gift of eternal life into my heart and soul. And I hope today that you've experienced that as well. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the New Testament book of Philippians, to Philippians chapter 2 for our time together here today. We've been going through a series over the last several weeks now entitled Joy for the Journey. Joy for the journey. And throughout this process, we've been reminded that life is very much like a journey. It's filled with ups and downs. It's filled with knowns and unknowns. It's filled with joys and it's filled with sorrows. It's filled with challenges and it's filled with great victories. Life is very much a journey. But God wants us to know through the, Paul, the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians that there is great joy in this journey when we focus our life and live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he penned these words in Philippians, now chapter 2, we're reminded that he greatly loved these believers that were there in Philippi. He loved them. He missed them. It had been 10 years since he had been to the city of Philippi. He, he greatly longed to be with them. Paul was in a situation of life where, frankly, he was facing great circumstance and great difficulty. Paul was in a season of life where his freedoms were limited as he was imprisoned and literally bound by chains to a Roman guard. Paul didn't know how this was going to work out. He didn't know if he was going to make it out of prison alive or not. Philippians chapter 1, he's kind of going through that process of wondering, am I going to go to heaven or am I going to remain on in the flesh? I'm not sure. But as Paul penned these words in Philippians chapter 2, I believe Paul begins to focus in on another aspect of joy. What's encouraging to know about Paul is no matter what he faced, no matter what he felt, no matter what the circumstance was that came his way, he had great joy. He had joy in the Lord. So far, we've seen in Philippians chapter 1 that through Jesus, Paul recognized he had been adopted into a family of believers. And so he had great joy in the church to recognize he wasn't alone, but he had brothers and sisters who were standing with him in support and in prayer. We've also seen how Paul looked at the gospel, and even though he was in prison, the gospel wasn't in prison. The gospel was still being furthered, and it was still going out, and as a result of that, he had great joy in the gospel. Last week, we saw how Paul had joy in the faith as he looked at the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and how believers can grow, and he found great joy. But today, we come to a fourth aspect 
of his faith in Christ, and we begin to recognize that Paul also had joy in a specific attitude, in a specific, uh, if you will, demeanor, in a specific characteristic of the church. And that is this. Paul saw that there was great joy in unity. There is great joy in unity. Philippians chapter 2, I want you to look with me at verses 1 through 11 as we read God's Word. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said as the Holy Spirit was giving direction. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And listen to the final statement, to the glory of God the Father. I want us to look back at verse 2 at that key statement as we recognize the joy in unity as the Apostle Paul pleads with the Philippians this statement, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time we've already had to worship you and to lift up your name through the singing of, of music. But God, I pray and thank you now for the opportunity that we have to lift up your name as we humble ourselves to your word. Would you speak to us, God? Would you convict us in whatever ways that it's needed? Would you comfort us in whatever ways that are needed? And ultimately, would you change us? And through it all, may you get the glory and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joy in unity. I imagine this morning that we all understand the importance of unity. Unity, by its basic definition, literally is the state or quality of being one, in being of one accord or being harmonious. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, that Jesus understood the importance of unity when he made this statement. He said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Of course, we're reminded of the importance of unity in a whole lot of different ways, even in our culture today. Certainly, a coach understands the importance of unity. A coach has a team of players in most situations, and, and they recognize there's different personalities, and each player has a different way of learning what needs to be learned, and, and each player brings different skills and abilities to the team. And the coach's job is to help bring those together in a unified way so that the team can be effective and have success and even to win. 
Certainly a business person understands the importance of unity as they recognize within their business there are various tasks and there are various needs and there are various responsibilities and there's various skills and abilities represented by the employees there in that business and they recognize in order for them to accomplish their goal, in order for them to move forward, they've got to move forward in a unified way. Certainly as a musician, maybe a composer, someone who plays an instrument, a singer, we understand the importance of unity. How often we've been so blessed here at Crosslink to see the, the band come together, whether that was a few people or whether that was a large group. And man, when the whole group works together, bringing each sound and each note and, and each chord and all those things, when it functions in a harmonious way, it's a beautiful thing. Man, just one thing can be off and guess what? Everybody suddenly notices it. We understand the importance of unity. And I believe what God is wanting us to understand this morning is that God calls us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls us to be a unified people. Please understand this morning, God wants us to have unity. David said it this way in Psalm 133 verse 1, he said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers, and I would add sisters, to dwell together in unity. God wants us to have unity. But maybe you're sitting there wondering this morning, is that even possible? I mean, we have so many differences. We have so many preferences. We have so many personalities. We have so many different backgrounds and gifts and skills. Is unity even possible? And I confess this morning that based upon man's ability, it is extremely difficult. In our own flesh, it does at times seem impossible because frankly, we sometimes wrestle and are at war with ourselves, much less the opinions and perspectives of others. I reminded the old illustration about the guy who was stranded on a deserted island and he prayed for years for there to be a rescue. And finally, one day there was a rescue. There was a boat off in the distance and they saw something and they came to the shore and they, they rescued the man and they asked him, oh my goodness, how long have you been here? He said, I don't know. I've been here for years. And he said, are you alone? And he said, yes, I'm alone. And he looked and he said, well, well, I'm looking off in the distance. There are two huts. What are those two huts? He said, oh, that nice big hut, that's where I go to church now. And they said, oh, that's interesting. Well, what's the second hut? And he said, that's where I used to go to church before I got upset and left. The fact of the matter is, in our own human nature, we are at times at war with ourselves. And so when we begin to add other imperfect people to the dynamic in an imperfect world, division is sure to occur. So how can we have unity when we are imperfect people living in an imperfect world? I believe in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul points us to four truths about unity. Four truths about unity that we would, be, we would do well to hear and to understand and to seek to apply in our lives today. Four truths of unity. Number one, I want you to see this morning what I'm calling the promise of unity. The promise of unity. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 really is a verse of scripture that sets the basis for all that the Apostle Paul is about to instruct of us as believers. In other words, he's kind of setting the framework. He's saying, listen, this is the foundation. This is where you get unity. This is the starting base of it all. And then from the starting base, you can begin to fulfill the instructions and the applications that I'm going to call you to. What is that basis? What is that phase one, so to speak? What is that vital source that we need to understand? It's found in two key words in verse one. If you've got a pen, I encourage you to underline it. If not, you can just kind of highlight it in your mind. It's the phrase, in Christ. 
in Christ. He says literally, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Please understand this morning, loud and clear, what the Apostle Paul is getting us to understand is that unity is only available, the unity that God is calling us to, in one person and in one person only. It's in Jesus Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is one of Paul's favorite phrases throughout the New Testament. In fact, you can go read Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 especially. I believe it's some 25 times you see in those chapters where he reminds us that as a believer, we are in Christ. And we begin to recognize with Christ all that God has accomplished and all that God is doing. To be in Christ means that we have believed in Jesus and we have trusted him as Lord and Savior. Paul uses this expression all the time. Well, what is the conclusion of this position being in Christ for those who believe? He tells us in Galatians chapter 3, listen to these words, verses 26 through 28. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. Listen to this. For you are all, what's the word, one in Christ Jesus. So for those of us who've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we not only have believed in Jesus, we are following Jesus as Lord. And at that moment of belief, literally, we are brought into the family of believers. We're united as one in him. Paul says here in verse 1, this little English word, if. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. In the Greek, this word, though, has a very different meaning than our English word, if. It literally is a word of cause. It's as if the Apostle Paul is, he's not giving this a a condition. He's saying, because these things are true, God is calling us to walk in unity. And he bases them all off of that first statement, if there is any encouragement in Christ. He's saying, because there is encouragement in Christ, I want you to know what God is calling us to do. I want you to know this morning, there is great encouragement in Christ. Would you agree? There's great encouragement in Christ. It is encouraging to know that no matter what you face and what you feel, that the Lord Jesus Christ is still the Lord over all and he still sits on the throne. It is encouraging to know that no matter what we face, no matter what we feel, that he promised that he would be with us even to the end of the age, that he will never leave us or forsake us. It's encouraging to know in Christ that he invites us to cast all of our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Is there encouragement in Christ? The obvious answer is absolutely there's encouragement in Christ. Absolutely. And so as we look to Jesus Christ, as we focus on Jesus Christ, God gives us encouragement and he gives us help and he gives us strength and he even gives us the ability by his grace to walk in rest and to walk in peace and to walk in unity today. If we focus our our focus on him, we will find the encouragement that we need. Corey Ten Boom said it this way, if you look at the world, guess what? You will be distressed. I think we can agree with that. Watch enough news today, you're going to be stressed out a little bit. If you look within, you will be depressed. Even in our culture today, we're seeing that at higher rates than ever before. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. You know what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, listen, I want you to know there is encouragement in Christ. And he goes on from that encouragement to say there's also consolation of love. It's literally speaking of the comfort that we have because of the love of God and because of the love that we have from brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on to speak about the fellowship that we have of the Spirit to know that the Holy Spirit of God is with us to comfort us and to console us in our time of need, to remind us even of the fellowship that we have as brothers and sisters because of the Holy Spirit. And he says affection 
speaking in compassion. It's speaking here of God's great grace and his compassion towards us and also the compassion that we experience towards one another as brothers and sisters in the body. Please understand the basis for everything that Paul is about to say is this simple truth. He wants you to know there's a promise. You can have unity because of who you are in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to see this morning from the text is what we'll simply call the practice of unity. The practice of unity. Now, Paul has taken a moment to say, now you can have unity. This unity where you have the same mind towards one another, it can be happening because of who you are in Jesus Christ if Christ is your Lord and Savior. But now, where does the rubber meet the road? What does that look like? How should that be practiced in our life? Since we are in Christ, we're to faithfully work towards unity and love and not rivalry and division. So how do we do that? Well, I think it's important to emphasize what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, as we see the practice of it. Now, Paul reminds us right up front of a very simple truth, beginning in verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. The fact of the matter is this morning is that the Apostle Paul had great joy in the Lord. But there's a simple and subtle truth that Paul is demonstrating at the beginning of this verse, and that is this. People often greatly impact our joy. There is joy in the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And sometimes that, that's, the, that, that is, I mean, that's our only place of joy. But the reality is, is that it's very easy for us, for the good or bad, to allow people to impact our joy. And so Paul says, literally, I want you to make my joy complete in this way. Now, please understand the Apostle Paul, he told us in Philippians chapter 1 that literally there were people in the region that were ministering in such a way to cause him strife. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to learn later that there were some people within the church that were causing division and they were kind of at each other and there wasn't agreement between the two and that was a cause of concern. We're reminded of the Apostle Paul and other passages of Scripture that Alexander the coppersmith, he caused Paul much harm. It's interesting the number of churches that Paul addressed in the New Testament where, once again, he had to deal with a division in the body of Christ. Paul recognized that joy came from the Lord, but he also understood the way that people often impact our joy. And so he says, listen, I want you to do something. I want you to strive towards unity, understanding that it will make my joy complete. The word literally here for this idea of joy being complete, it literally means filled to the brim. It's the idea that it's completely filled up and overflowing. Uh, let me illustrate it in a very simple way. Uh, several weeks ago now, two or three weeks ago, my daughter Lane, she has such a joyful spirit and such a servant's heart. Lane came to me and she said, Daddy, can, can I make you a cup of coffee? Well, being that I was tired and I've gotten to where I enjoy a cup of coffee, it didn't take a lot of convincing, okay? I said, absolutely, you can make me a cup of coffee. Now, I have to confess that I am not, uh, I've not been a really good coffee drinker through the years. I mean, I've just started drinking coffee the last few years. And so when I drink coffee, I like it with lots of cream and sugar, okay? It's like my unhealthy uh, habit, if you will. And, and so, so Lane said, Dad, can I fix your coffee? I said, yes. She said, well, how much cream and how much sugar? And I gave her an explanation. And a few minutes later, she, she walked to the kitchen. She's making it. And then she called out and she said, Daddy, Daddy, can you come help me? I need your help. And I said, no, sweetie, you can, you can just bring it to me. And she said, Daddy, I can't. I need your help. And so I came into the kitchen to quickly look and realize, yeah, that cup had some coffee in it. That is absolutely true. But it had lots of cream and lots of sugar, and it was beginning to overflow over the cup, okay? 
What I'm saying to you is that when I looked at that cup, it was looking at, it was like a glorious moment where the skies opened and, and, and it was just like there was liquid gold sitting there. And so I had to, it was so overflowing, I had to lean over to the cup and sip a little bit before I could pick it up. She was afraid to pick it up because it was overflowing. The idea that Paul is saying here is this, and he said, listen, I want you to know, when you brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, it brings great joy to me. It is overflowing. It's a blessing. It's a beauty. It's a wonderful thing. It's interesting to note that that word joy that Paul uses here in Philippians chapter 2 is the same word that is written in Hebrews chapter 13 when the Bible gives us this instruction. It literally says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Listen to this. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. Paul had great joy in the Lord, but he also recognized as the brothers and sisters in Christ lived as they ought and dwelled together in unity, that that too also brought great joy to him. So often in our life, we look at our calling and we're reminded that our goal in all things is to bring glory to God. But God has also given us a very practical gauge in many ways to look and see, do our actions Bring, bring joy to the body of Christ? Or our actions bring joy to the shepherds who are serving us and praying for us? Or do instead they bring grief? The Apostle Paul in this moment is giving a practice and he begins to tell us three things that we should do as believers if we're going to have unity. Number one, we've got to be like-minded. Notice what he says in verse two, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. And here's a key thing, I think, intent on one purpose, being of the same mind. The phrase literally means to mind or to think the same thing. And what he's recognizing here is that God is calling us to have a like-mindedness, a single-mindedness, a same-mindedness about the things of the Lord. It's like the apostle Paul is looking at them and he is saying, listen, I know you've got different personalities. I know you've got different backgrounds. I know that you process information differently. I know that some of you like this and some of you like that, but here's the deal. When it comes to the focus that we have on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I believe the context here we'll see in a moment is dealing with the gospel. When it comes to the essentials, when it comes to the vitals of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be like-minded. And by fact, I believe that Paul begins to recognize in this letter that it, their divisions were just evidence that there was something spiritually wrong in the hearts and lives of some. Say, Pastor, does that mean that everyone will think the same way? No. Does that mean we're all going to have the per same personalities? No. Does that mean that we're all going to like the same sports team? No. Does that mean we're going to process information the same way? No. Does that mean we're all going to agree on the date that we should come back into the building? No. But what Paul is calling us to in the context is this. He's calling us to have the same mind about the calling and the priority of the gospel. The context of this phrase is still dealing back with verse 27 when the Apostle Paul said this, these simple words. He said, I want to hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's that idea that Paul's saying, listen, I want you to make my joy complete. Be of the same mind concerning the gospel, maintaining the same love related to the gospel, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, for the cause of Christ, for the glory of God, for the mission of the church, we must be unified. Set aside the non-essentials. Set aside the petty squabbles that don't have a place in God's church. Come together, lay aside those things so that the glory of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is loud and clear and evident in all that you do. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
If we are walking in the love of Christ, united in spirit and focused on our singular purpose of making Christ known, there will be unity. There are always going to be some things that we don't see the same way in. We have to make a distinction between what are the essentials and what are the non-essentials. So often, sadly, we get caught up on the non-essentials. What's the music style like? How many times did they sing the chorus? What is the pastor's preaching style like? What, What are the people dressed like? Do they have chairs or pews or whatever else? That is in no way, shape, or form the focus of this scripture. God is calling us to be unified in the gospel. Far too often instead, we are content to give in to the enemy's temptations to spend our energies on friendly fire while much of the world is still in desperate need of Jesus. My family and I have been, over the past week or so, we've been doing a a morning devotional. We've been uh, with a ministry called Right Now Media. We'll tune in during the morning time and we'll watch a brief devotional. Then we'll talk about it for a while and One of the things we watched this past week was of a guy that many of us know in our culture today by the name of Tim Tebow. Uh, Certain things about his messaging really ministered to my kids. And so we were watching this uh, devotional, and this was not his primary point, but it illustrates my point very well. And that is that he gave the testimony of, uh, of his family coming together for a family reunion. He was so excited. It was his idea to bring the family together. And apparently their family's very competitive. And so he determined that the best thing they could do as a family to be united was they created a family Olympics, basically. They were somewhere in South Florida. They had this whole series of competitions and games. Most of them were, were invented, but then they even included things like, like wrangling a bald python, you know, like really exciting uh, things. But they, they had this family competition, and he tells a story in his testimony that, that it started really good, but by 30 minutes in, there was so much trash talking going on that literally people were getting upset and were leaving the family Olympics. And he tells the testimony that what it intended to be a lot of fun and a time of competition and a thing of enjoyment literally within a few hours ended up with people upset with each other, voices being raised, people storming off, and it was anything but unified. But he went on to tell the story that as they were wrapping up their time, there was apparently another family staying at the same resort and they recognized Tim Tebow and they saw his family and one of the guys from the other family came and said, hey, we, we've got a bunch of guys. We're kind of our background is military and, and, and our families all gathered together. It's the first time we've been together in years. Could our family compete against your family? And, and Tim Tebow gives the testimony that they said absolutely and so they literally let them pick the games and his family came together and within a matter of minutes he would tell the story about his family came together. They were unified. Now instead of trash talking each other, they're moving forward with the objective and the goal of defeating the horrible other family. And Tim Tebow tells the story in a humorous way of how his family came together and frankly they demolished the other team. But what I heard when I heard that illustration was the reminder of sadly what we often see even amongst believers. When we are not focused on our mission and our calling, when we are not personally doing our part to be the witness that God has called us to be, what ultimately happens is we give in to the temptations and the lies of the enemy to begin to focus on all the inadequacies and insufficiencies of others and we come with a critical condescending spirit and we completely miss out on what God has called us to do and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. When Paul says be like-minded, he's reminding them that we must be like-minded in the gospel with the goal and the purpose of reaching others and edifying and unifying the body of Christ. Secondly, we must be not only like-minded, we must be lowly. 
The word lowly is describing the attitude of humility that we must practice in our lives. Paul said it this way in verse 3, we should do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Here's how he said it in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 and verse 16. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 16, so be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. The Apostle Paul loud and clear is saying, listen, I want you to walk and live with an attitude of grace and of humility. Paul says in this scripture, literally in verse 3, that we should do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is so prevalent in our human nature. The basic cause and the basic root of selfishness ultimately is pride. So while Warren Mearsby would say these words, he would say there can be no joy in the life of the Christian who puts himself above others. Selfishness manifests itself in so many ways. Selfishness is seen at times in the way that we seek our own wants and preferences above another. Selfishness can be seen in the way that we demand that we are right and that there's no margin for us potentially being wrong. Selfishness can be seen in the way that we demand others to do things and see things the same exact way as we do. But at the heart of it all is always a sense of pride. This word for selfishness literally in the Greek can be translated contention and strife. It's literally the idea of those who are continually in a critical spirit coming for the purpose of pulling down and putting down. And God says it leads to an empty conceit, a vain glory. It may puff itself up, but it leads to nothing in the end. Instead, we are to practice humility by putting the needs of others before our own. We're to practice humility and recognizing that we are not always right. We're to practice humility by having open eyes to what God may be doing and speaking. The attitude of humility is ultimately the habit of seeing and treating others as more important than ourselves. The question for each of us to consider is this Does this describe us? Are we humble? Do we walk in humility? Or we're continually looking for how to put the needs of others before ourselves? And the third thing we see in this practice of unity is not only to be like-minded or to be lowly, but ultimately to be loving. Notice what he says in verse 4. So do not merely look out for your own personal interest. Everybody does that. We naturally do that. But also for the interests of others. In other words, what God is saying is, listen, he's calling us to have an, an, not only an attitude of humility, but he's calling us to have a love for one another, Whereas believers, we're continually living our life thinking the best of one another, encouraging one another, seeking to build up for one another. We're constantly seeking the good of one another, the well-being, the promotion. We're constantly looking not just after people's possessions, but we're looking out for ways to encourage them and to help them. We're looking out for them even before ourselves. The culture says to love yourself and do what you want. Take the credit and get the attention. But God says, no, love me first and love others by putting their needs above your own. No wonder the Bible would tell us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
1 Corinthians 13 reminds us so clearly of the importance of love when it says this in verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. God is calling us to love one another. But I want you to see thirdly, and really it's the primary point of the message, and that is I want you to see the picture of unity. The picture of unity. I hope you're still tuning in from your living room. I hope you're tuning out the distractions because right here and right now, I believe is the main focus of the entire message. Because literally we've seen already that the the main basis for this unity is our position in Christ, if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior. The practice of it sounds pretty simple, But we finally see the ultimate climactic moment, really in verses 5 through 8, as the Apostle Paul says, now, let me show you what this looks like. The prescription for unity is pretty simple. But notice the example of it that's found as we see this incredible picture of unity. Where else do we best learn to have unity and to have humility and to have love than from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what the Bible says in verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Clear instruction. But now notice how Jesus modeled this unity for us. Notice what he did to demonstrate this for us. Verse six, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice what Jesus first did to model unity for us. First and foremost, Jesus let go of his rights. So often in a time of conflict, we like to focus on our rights, where we have been right, where it's our perspective and this is the way that it is. Please understand in this moment, God is showing us that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he literally let go of his rights. The Bible says that he existed in the form of God. And what that means is it means that when Jesus came to this earth and put on human flesh, yes, he was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. Jesus was completely man in every sense of the word, that he was tired, that he was hungry, that, that he faced everything we face with one exception, and that is that Jesus never sinned. He never sinned. He was 100% man just like us in every sense except for the fact he never sinned. And at the same time, he was also fully God with divine rights, divine attributes, and divine qualities. So as Jesus walked on the face of this earth, at all times, he never ceased being 100% man, and he never ceased being 100% God. And we begin to see this contrast going on throughout his entire life. For example, when Jesus fell asleep on the boat, we saw loud and clear he was tired, he was fully man. But when Jesus stood up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and told him to be still, he revealed that he was fully God. For example, he proved that he was man when he went to the tomb in John chapter 11 and he wept over the loss of a loved one as Lazarus had passed away. But he proved he was God when he spoke out loud and said, Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came alive from the grave. Jesus, for example, proved he was man when he spoke in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well and he said, give me something to drink, I'm thirsty. And yet he proved he was God when he confronted her in her sin and brought about a transformation, a change that only he could bring. He proved he was man when he suffered on that cross and he cried out, it is finished. But I want you to know, he proved he was God when three days later he rose again from the grave. 
Jesus was 100% man and 100% God, and yet the Bible says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He says he, he existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasp literally means the idea of, of being clutched and not let go of. I, I don't know about you, but anybody ever tried to steal a piece of candy from a baby, from a little one? Man, 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 this, this past week, my sister and brother-in-law from Indiana were here in town. And uh, my little niece, uh, Cariana, she's under two, and she had gotten into a piece of candy. And frankly, it was a big piece of candy to the extent that it would be dangerous for her to swallow that piece of candy. And immediately, my wife, Heather, noticed it, and she went after Cariana to, to, to get that piece of candy from her. But I want you to know, when a two-year-old's got a piece of candy, it's got a death grip. I mean, that, you know, like... Over my dead body, you know, where you get this thing. She's grasping it with everything that she had. Here's the picture. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, Jesus was 100% God in flesh. But please understand, he did not regard equality with God something to be so clung tightly to. No. Yes, he was God. Yes, he came to this earth. But please understand when he did. Though he was worthy of all praise and all adoration, though he was fully God, when he came to this earth, he laid aside that right. He didn't put himself first. He didn't demand that others treat him in the way that he deserved. No, he didn't say, this is mine. This is my deity. This is who I am. Fall and worship me. No, the Bible says that he came emptying himself, literally laying aside his rights. At any moment of his earthly life, he could have called the angels of heaven to remove him from this sin-cursed world, but instead he laid aside his rights and he persevered in the purpose for which he came. Secondly, he lowered himself to the role of a servant. Notice what the scripture says in verse 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Please don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean that Jesus ever ceased being God. Jesus was fully God in flesh. But in this moment, the Bible's telling us that even though he was fully God at all times, yet for our sakes, he willingly lowered himself by humbly taking on the role of a servant. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 20, verse 28, that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's reminding us that Jesus, his very purpose and mission, he came not to be adored and worshiped in that moment, but he came to serve and he came to seek and save those who are lost. He came to give his life ultimately for us. The Lord of heaven came as a servant. Another translation says it this way, Jesus made himself of no reputation. Think of that for a moment. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet when he came to this earth, he made himself of no reputation. Well, what does a king wear? A king wears a crown. And yet when Jesus came, the only crown that he wore was a crown of thorns. What does a king sit upon? A king sits upon a throne where he comes and he brings judgment. The only thing we see of Scripture that Jesus was upon ultimately was the cross where he came and gave his life. He was fully God. He never stopped being God. But please understand, he came not to be that, that king looking down upon his subjects, but he came to be a servant so that you and I could be saved and our lives could be changed. That's why we see all throughout Scripture Jesus ministering to the least likely people, ministering to the lepers, ministering to those that have been forgotten and forsaken, the rejected, ministering to the woman at the well. 
That's why we see Jesus over and over again, ultimately even to the place where he's in the upper room and he's getting ready to wash the disciples' feet. And when Peter realized that Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was about to wash his filthy feet, he cried out to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. You're the Lord, you're the Savior, you're the King. Never shall you do this. And of course, he didn't understand all that was going on, but please understand, he did understand that Jesus was lowering himself in that moment to be a servant. Which brings us ultimately to the fulfillment of that picture of unity, doesn't it? And that is, I want you to see how Jesus laid down his life. Jesus laid down his life in verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid down his life for us. In fact, I think it was this reality as the Apostle Paul is penning these words that Jesus died death, but not only did he experience death, but even on a cross, Paul understood that the cross in that culture was the greatest symbol of suffering and shame that the world could put forth. It was the image of the cross that I believe the Apostle Paul had so many struggles with when he recognized that that Jesus had died on the cross before he believed in Jesus. He just could not accept that. He didn't understand that because he knew, according to the Old Testament, that literally that only those who were despised and only those who were forsaken, those that were the worst of the worst, were the ones that were crucified on a cross. He had a hard time accepting Jesus. Until on the Damascus Road, he met the resurrected Christ, and he began to realize what was really going on. He began to realize who Jesus truly was, that he was the Lord over all. And here the Apostle Paul would say these words. How much did Jesus love the world? How much did Jesus care for all mankind? How much did Jesus humble himself? Even to the extent of becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isn't it interesting that we were told a moment ago, according to verses two through four, that we're to be like-minded, we're to be lowly, and we're to be loving. Where where do we see that all demonstrated? We see it in Jesus. In other words, unity was not a clever concept of man. Unity was not some man-made agenda or idea. No, unity existed first and foremost in the heart and mind of God. It was demonstrated by perfect unity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And even though Jesus was completely God in flesh, and even though he was one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Bible says he didn't hold that as something to be grasped, but he willingly laid aside his rights. He humbly came to this earth. He willingly served mankind and even gave his life on the cross. Romans 5 says it simply, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe another way to say that is just the simple verse of John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Friend, what incredible demonstration of unity, of humility, and of love we see in Jesus himself. The final thing I want you to see from this text is this. I want you to see the purpose of unity. The purpose of unity. The unity that we are called to has not only been prescribed as a practice, but it has been fully exhibited in and through the life of Jesus Christ. But there's a purpose in that. The purpose is not merely so that we'll get along, though that sounds good. The purpose is not merely for our benefit or for our sake. The purpose is not merely so that the shepherds, like the Apostle Paul, would have joy, though that's certainly a benefit. 
I want you to see where this concludes in verses 9 through 11. Jesus humbled himself and died, didn't he? But he didn't stay dead. They took his body off the cross, they put him in a tomb, and three days later he rose again from the grave. He appeared to the disciples on multiple times. He appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses at one time over a 40-day period. He, demonstra- he, he, he talked with people, he walked with people, he ate with people, and then he ascended to heaven with the promise that he would come again. Listen to this summary statement about Christ in verses 9 through 11, and then I want us to really focus in on the last phrase of our text. For this reason, since Jesus humbled himself and came and gave his life on the cross for our sins, rose again from the grave, for this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and are under and on earth and are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Time out, pause there, and just for a moment say, Hallelujah. Jesus is the Lord over all. He's the Lord over all. And the Bible says there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved. There is no name greater than the name of Jesus. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether above the earth or on the earth or under the earth, all creation will bow and declare Jesus is Lord. And the wonderful truth is that many of us today While there's opportunity for grace and forgiveness and mercy and salvation and deliverance, we've called upon Jesus to be Lord. If you're tuning in right now and watching and you've never called upon Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be saved today. You can experience God's grace today. There are many who will refuse and put it off, but make no mistake about it. Whether you accept him today as Lord and experience his grace or not, one day you will still bow your knee and confess Jesus as Lord. It can be now and experience God's grace or it can be later and experience God's judgment as you acknowledge loud and clear that you rejected the Lord and the only Savior of your soul. But what's the point of it all? I think Paul speaks in verse 11, and he brings it all together. Please, please understand, these verses of Scripture, verses 9 through 11, point to us the reality that Jesus is the Lord over all. And these messages, I mean, these verses, you can preach them just as that. It is powerful. But you can't dismiss these verses from the context. What is Paul talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8? What is Paul talking about in verses 12 and the verses that follow? Guess what he's talking about? He's still talking about unity. Why? What's the purpose of it all? What's the end result of the body of Christ, hello, living and acting like the body of Christ? What's the point of it when we come together, striving together for the purpose of the gospel? I mean, what's the purpose of it all when we recognize God's calling to love others above ourselves? What is the purpose of it all? I I believe here's the purpose, verse 11. What does it conclude with? All of it is to... The glory of God the Father. In other words, when you and I love Jesus and love others like Jesus, I want you to know God brings incredible unity. But it's not merely for our benefit. It is so that ultimately he gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. You know, it's crazy today that we live in a day where Many people talk about the glory of God as if it is some mysterious and unknown thing. 
But I believe what God is showing us in Philippians chapter 2 in a very practical and very real way is this. He is glorified when we love Jesus Christ and live for him and through him today. How did Jesus live? He lived with unity, humility, and love. And I believe he's calling us to do the same thing today. The world may not see literally Jesus Christ, but guess what? They can see us. And what they see about Jesus in us is largely going to determine what they think to be true. Jesus prayed it this way in John chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. He says, Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. That's you and I, Christian, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Today I question and I want you to ask yourself, have you believed in Jesus as Lord? Have you confessed him to be your Lord and Savior? Many times we'll say, oh, yes, I have. Many times we'll sing about it, even as we sang a moment ago, that Jesus is Lord. But my hope and prayer today is that we'll not just sing about it, we'll not just say it, but that we'll live like it in our life, showing it daily in our actions through our unity, humility, and love that Jesus is the Lord of all. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.